Thank you for joining us here on the Bowling Green Christian Church Podcast. Our mission is to love God, encourage our community, serve those in need, and share the good news of Jesus. You can find out more about how we do this on our website at BowlingGreenChristian.org. It is our prayer that the following message encourages you as you take your next step in faith. You think you own me, but you don't. You think you can destroy me, you can't. Your labels do not contain me. Your lies do not intimidate me. I will not be less than what I was created to be, and I will not run in fear. Time and time again, you've held me down, but not today. Today, I win the battle. Today, you run from me because I am strong. I am courageous. I am an overcomer. All right, overcomer, here we go. Queen Esther. Um, Esther is all about dealing with this unjust system of power that exists in the kingdom of Persia. And it might seem like that's awfully removed from us, but we live in a world with unjust systems of power as well. Some of you are acutely aware of that, some of you are not. It's interesting to me that it's, it's easy to see the systems of power that are annoying to us, like the system that determines what your cable bill is going to be and how it goes up exponentially every month for no good reason whatsoever. There's a system that's actively working against you. It's easy to see systems that uh, are holding you back or holding you down or are completely broken. I think that's why there's so much attention right now being paid to uh, our legislatures. I mean, it just seems like nothing can get done. You know, uh, systems of power that have a lot of power over your personal lives. Some of you know, I mean, about things like a family court system. Um, I've yet to hear one person say, you know what? The family court system in America is perfect. Perfect. It couldn't be any better. Some of you know acutely how broken that system is. Um, As I came into the study for the book of Esther, um, I read through the book, which is always a good thing to do if you're going to preach out of it. Um, So I read through the book, and I read through the book of Esther a bunch. I I couldn't tell you how many. I've read through it a whole bunch, but I don't think I had read through the book of Esther since the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement came on the scene in America. And, I mean, I live in the same world you live in, and it seemed like person after person was coming forward with stories of how maybe because of their gender or just a position of powerlessness, they had been taken advantage of or had been abused or assaulted and, you know, were expected to remain quiet. And so many people came forward and said, you know, that's me too. And I'm confident in a room that this size that there are several of you who could say the same exact thing. And so that movement leads into the Time's Up movement where they said, you know what, that's it. There's, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to allow this to happen and to continue on. And the Time's Up on allowing this type of abusive culture to, to prevail. And so we saw person after person, generally powerful men in positions from the church to morning news shows to academia to CEOs, 
and we just saw these folks be held accountable for what they had done. And, you know, there's still a lot more work to be done there. But as I thought about that, I started thinking about, you know, this was an issue that I was largely unaware of. You know, it's one of those things, because it didn't affect me maybe personally, I hadn't paid much attention to it. And it got me thinking, you know, this book and the study and all this stuff about other systems of power, perhaps, that I had been a part of that I was unaware of. And it just caused me to start asking a lot of questions and thinking about a lot of different places, you know, where I've served and things I've done. And, you know, and it makes you think about the church. You know, the church has, you know, had those moments where um, in its past it's been uh, oppressive of people. It's been abusive. It's, you know, it's been uh, tilted against women. I mean, there's a lot of things that we could say the church hasn't done right. And I just started thinking about, again, just myself and my own personal interactions with systems of power that maybe I hadn't thought about before. And I thought about uh, a particular interaction I had in this church about, oh, 12 years ago, maybe, getting ready to be 14 years here. Maybe it's longer than that. But I was on a search committee, and we were looking for a new worship leader. And there was an individual on that search team that's not here anymore, and I want to be real clear about that. That person's not here anymore. But as we were going through the names and the people and the lists and all the resumes that came through, uh, this individual looked at one of the resumes and says, this person seems to me to be very qualified, but I don't think our church is ready for a black worship minister. That was the statement. Now, I had kind of just moved here, and I had a new baby, and I think Jenny was pregnant again at the time, and uh, I thought to myself, what have I gotten into? Because coming from California, you know, I was thinking, you know, this is the 21st century, right? You know, racism's like still a thing, and I came back, and I told my wife, and I said, you'll never believe what happened, and you'll never believe what I heard, and I would love to tell you that I was courageous and brave and that I stood up and I said, that's wrong. The best I could do, I was in a position of fear. I just have to own this. I said, you know, all I could say was, are, are you sure? Or it might have been, are you serious? And the answer was yes. And I left it there. I left it there. And I'm not proud of that, but I, I did. And I thought about another search we did. And this was a few years after that looking for a youth intern, somebody to help us with student ministry. And as I called around to different uh, colleges looking for somebody who was, you know, majoring in student ministry, trying to find somebody, uh, I was told by one college, you know, hey, we're kind of out of everybody that you'd probably want. That is unless your church is ready for a female student ministry intern. And I said, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely we're ready for a female student ministry intern. And we were able to hire her and bring her on, and, and that was a great, you know, opportunity for the summer and for the church and for her. And I thought, you know, as I thought about these two interactions, I realized that there were systems of power that worked to my advantage that I was completely clueless of. You know, when I had applied for the job here, you know, who knows who was on the search team? If it was the same individual, then guess what? I, it worked to my advantage that my ethnicity was right. And it worked to my advantage that my gender was right. You see, it's real easy to see the systems of power that hold us back, but it's hard to sometimes see the ones that work to our advantage. And the book of Esther, I think, calls us to look at all of the systems of power that we find ourselves in and to deal with them and to make sure that they're right and that they're good 
and that they are accomplishing the things that God wants to accomplish. Here's the thing. Esther lived in a broken system of power just the way that we live in a broken system of power. And so there's some of you here who are clueless. There's others of you here who are acutely aware of systems that are working against you. And I want us to all take this opportunity as we go through this book in the next few weeks to really look at what we're contributing and what we're doing. Because there's one profound message that I think comes through this entire book, and that's that we need to work for right wherever we are. Um, Now, this is one of those books, uh, and it's a rare book in the Old Testament and even probably more rare in the New Testament where we've got a female hero. So as we go through this series, I'll be talking about her and what she needs to do and how she found what was right. And for us as men, that will be unusual, but it's nothing that the ladies in the church don't have to do every single Sunday. So uh, I'm sure we can look past that for the next few weeks as we uncover some pretty amazing truths about life and leadership and systems of power in the book of Esther. Uh, But this morning, we're going to be in uh, chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther. That's going to be where we are. I'm going to tell the story and not put it on the screen because there's just kind of too much text to sort of read through it. And so I'm going to tell the story, but you could go home today and you could look the story up and you could read it and you could make sure that I told it to you accurately. Um, You know, you could do all of those things, but I want to just tell the story. Uh, So Esther chapter one, it opens up with a guy by the name of King Xerxes. And he is the king, or maybe we would think of him as the emperor of the Persian empire. And King Xerxes has a a real healthy self-esteem, high ego. He's known for uh, thinking very well of himself and using other people. And so King Xerxes, he wants to celebrate his accomplishments. He wants to celebrate the accomplishments of his kingdom. And so it says that he throws a party. And this isn't just like a, hey, come over to my place Friday night party. It is a six-month party. It says that this party goes on for 180 days. That is one big party, friends. Now, what probably was happening is he was inviting people from all of the provincial, you know, districts of the empire, and they were coming in for about a week, of, and they would celebrate, and they'd party, they'd have a big feast, and the wine was flowing freely, and that's what was happening in these parties, and this was going on, and so they'd come, they'd party for a week, and he'd send them off, and then, you know, another group of people would come in, and then he'd send them off, and, and it says that the partying ends with a party of all of the people that work in the capital city. So probably all of his very best friends, the most powerful of the powerful, his most trusted advisors, all come to the capital city of Susa because they're there and they're partying and they're having a big time. And it says at the end of this week-long party, it says that the King Xerxes was feeling good, okay? He was high in spirits. He had a high octane in his blood system. I mean, he'd been drinking quite a bit and he said, you know what we really need in here? We need to bring Queen Vashti over here so you can all look at her so that way all you guys can see how hot my wife is. That's, that's really what he says. And what you don't know about Persian parties that are different from American parties is that the men and women didn't party together. They're partying separately. So you'd have had an all-man party and had an all-women party. The men would have been with the king, the women would have been with the queen, and that's how it would have been. Now, the other thing you don't know about the Persian life is that the Persian women who had a position of power uh, didn't go around in public view. Uh, And by go around in public view, I mean like nobody saw them except for their husbands and in the queen's case, the eunuchs who attended her. That was it. Uh, When they went out in public, they would go in the carriage that had uh, curtains around it so you couldn't see in. If they went out, you know, maybe they'd go in a sedan chair that was completely covered. You would never see the face of the queen. It just didn't happen. And so when the king 
uh, who's drunk, invites the queen to come over so that way everybody can take a look at her. What he's asking her to do is to not just objectify herself, but also to bring herself down several uh, positions in the social ladder. And Queen Vashti, uh, she suspects all that's going on, and she says, no, I'm not going to come. Now, this is not a word, the no word, that the king was accustomed to hearing. Most people didn't say no to him. They just said, yes, whatever you want, you're the boss, applesauce, and that's how it went down. And so he's kind of in a conundrum, and he's like, what am I going to do about this? And so he gets the brain trust of all of his uh, you know, men, you know, uh, colleagues there, and he says, all right, what are we going to do about this? And they're like, you know, we got problems, like big problems, king, because here's what's going to happen. If, Al, if my wife hears that your wife said no, guess what my wife's going to do? It's going to get bad. We can't have this. And then there's going to be a re revolt of women across the kingdom, and all these women are going to be telling all their men no, and we're gonna, this can't happen. we got to stop it now. This is a crisis. And so with all of their collective wisdom, these men say, you know what you should do? You should kick her out. Just throw her out. Just, just toss her. Just say, you know, there's the curb, there's the door, see you later. And so that's what they did. He, he banished his wife. In chapter 2, it seems like, reading between the lines and also having watched the VeggieTales movie, which is very authoritative on this, it seems that he feels a little bit of remorse. He feels kind of sad that he tossed his wife, and now he's alone, and he doesn't want to be alone. He likes having a, you know, a queen, and so he goes and he tells us, you know, again, the brain trust that, that tossed Vashti out. He says, well, what should I do? And they said, you know what you ought to do. You're the king. You ought to act like the king. Go ahead and issue a command, a royal decree, that every single eligible young woman who's attractive, put all that in there, should come to the palace for a beauty contest, and then whoever you like the best, you pick that, that woman, and she will be the queen. And so we have the king go, yeah, that's a great idea, and we have essentially what is the very first issue of Bachelor, um, you know, Persian Empire edition. That's what's happening. Now, but the difference between Bachelor and what's happening here is this is not like an open casting call. They're not going through the kingdom going, hey, young pretty lady, would you like to come to the king's house? They're saying, hey, young pretty lady, you have to come to the king's house. It is the law. If you don't come, bad things will happen. And so these women are forcibly rounded up. And the text tells us that what happens is these women go through a period of beauty treatments. You know, we don't really know what was happening there, but they were getting beautified. They had, you know, hairstylists and makeup stylists and whoever else was there helping them to look their best. And after the period, they said it took six months. After that period, they would go, they would spend a night with the king, and then they would come back to the harem. And that's where they would live the rest of their lives. And they would probably only see the king that one time. And then they could never, ever leave the harem again. So you've got a lot of gals who've been rounded up, and they're essentially going to be put into slavery, into perpetual widowhood, because they will never have a family, they'll never have a career, they'll never leave that house, they'll never leave that place. That is where they will be for the rest of their life. So King Xerxes, who has banished his wife because she wouldn't do what she wanted, he wanted her to do, is now going to inflict greater harm on all of the women in the empire that he can get his hands on. And it's into this scenario and situation that we meet a young woman by the name of Esther. Now, Esther has been raised by her, I think if we do the math, he ends up being like a second cousin. 
He's older than her, so he's kind of like an uncle, but the text says that he's taken Esther into his house, and he has raised her as his own daughter, so he becomes the adoptive father of Esther. This is a guy by the name of Mordecai. Now, Mordecai knows there's nothing he can do about this, and so she's going to have to go to the palace, and so he tells her, listen, he says, make the most of this situation. Don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. It seems that there's a rise of anti-Semitism going on in the Persian kingdom, and Mordecai is afraid that if they find out that she's Jewish, things will go badly for her. And so he says, listen, don't tell anybody who your people are. Don't tell anybody where you come from. Just go, do what they say, make the most of the situation. And in fact, that's what she does. The text tells us that she goes, and I think it was probably through just her kindness and through the way that she treated people, and we'll see glimpses of this later in her story, that she wins the favor of the, the chief beauty consultants or eunuchs of the time, and the chief tells her you know, what she should wear, what she should bring to see the king on her you know, night with him, and you know, the, what she should do and say, and as a result of that, she becomes the next queen of Persia. And as we'll look in the coming weeks, it's that position that's going to enable her to bring about some pretty remarkable changes in a very unjust system. But this morning, what I want to look at is these characters. Just kind of look at the surface level of these characters. Now, I know we've had some comments. People say, I want some deep Bible study. I don't really know what that like, means. Like, I want some Hebrew and some Greek. You know, I have an earned doctorate. I, we could do some of that here. We could talk about Esther's two names and the significance of that, but I'll tell you, I haven't fully processed the surface reading of this text. I haven't fully processed what it means just in plain, good old English, and I think until we master the basic meaning of the text, we have no business going any deeper. And so today, we're just going to look at the surface level of this text. We're just going to look at the overview of it, look at the characters, and try to understand where we find ourselves and how we might work for right wherever we find ourselves. So here we go. Here's the characters. We've got King Xerxes. Now, who is King Xerxes? King Xerxes, I've got a word for him. He is the problem. He is the problem person. He is the epitome of the system. He is, quote-unquote, the man. Okay, That is King Xerxes. That's who he is. The whole system of power works to make him happy. So he doesn't have to work that hard to be happy because it all kind of goes for him. He, he asks a question, the answer is always yes, we'll get it done. That's how it goes. King Xerxes sees people as objects and he uses them for his own pleasure. And so King Xerxes is the problem. He thinks primarily and maybe only about himself. You have another character here. We meet her early. We don't talk a lot about her. That's Queen Vashti. I think of Queen Vashti as a prophet. Now, perhaps you haven't given Queen Vashti much thought, because after chapter 1, we don't hear about her again. She's gone. But Queen Vashti, she does this. She speaks truth to power. And as you look at the Old Testament prophets, you see, in fact, that's what they do. King Elijah, or not King, Prophet Elijah and Prophet Elisha, they speak truth to the evil kings of the northern empire, and they say, listen, what you're doing is wrong, God is not happy, and if you don't change, something bad will happen. That's the truth that they tell them. You come to John the Baptist in the New Testament, and he looks at this unjust system of power that King Herod has, and he says, listen, I'm going to speak truth to you, you shouldn't be living with your brother's wife, that's wrong. Isaiah, prophet also, he speaks truth again to the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah. She's a prophet. She speaks truth to this power, and she says, no, this is wrong. I won't do it. 
Now, unfortunately, like most prophets, her tenure is very short. There's not a lot of long-term prophets. It's not a, a job you get old in. Uh, you know, John the Baptist, he speaks truth to power. He gets beheaded. You know, Isaiah, the text tells us, uh, tradition, I should say, tells us that he gets sawed in half. Uh, being a prophet isn't a, a long-term vocation. Uh, and Queen Vashti gets banished. I also want to say this. There's very few prophets, really, in the world. I know some people like to say they're prophets. Really, what they are is they're just opinionated, and they're mouthy, and they like to tell everybody what they think and why it's right. That doesn't make you a prophet. A prophet is when you speak the truth from God, and you say, listen, this is, this is, this is just how it is. That's the gift of prophecy. Queen Vashti's a prophet. Uh, there's another character we see here, and that's this character, Mordecai. Mordecai has a position of authority in the kingdom, and he uses it to bring Esther in. I call him a stair builder. He is building stairs so that way people who are outside the system can have a position inside the system. And what Mordecai is hoping to do is to change the system, and in fact, he'll do that. As he invites more people into the system, as he makes it possible for Esther to navigate the system of power that is actively working against her, he will see people come into the system and the system will change. And so that's Mordecai. And then you have Esther. She's the hero of the story, but what is she? She is a subversive. She is a subversive. Now, I know I've used this word before. It makes people really uncomfortable. They're like, I don't know, subversion sounds bad. Well, I mean, if you're in power, it's bad, right? <laughs> what does it mean to be subversive? It means to be underneath the system and then to turn it over. It means to be stepped on and then flip it. It means to allow yourself to maybe be used and then use that position as leverage to your advantage to change the system. That's what Esther does. She comes, she doesn't fight it, she doesn't say, well, I don't want to be here, I'm not going to do anything you tell me to do. That's what a lot of the girls did, and you see, they don't get to be made queen, they don't get a voice later in the story, they're just, you know, relegated to the harem, that's all that they have. But Queen Esther says, you know, I'll play this game so long as I have to, so that way I can make some changes that have to be made. She's a subversive, she comes up underneath the system and brings change. That's what Esther does. And what Esther reminds us is simply this, that we can work for right wherever we are. You don't have to have a position of power. You don't even have to have what we think of as a voice. You just have to be willing to do what is right wherever you find yourself. That's, that's the power of that. Now, I know it sometimes seems like that's a really hard thing to do, and maybe, you know, what can one person do? But it, it can be a lot. I told you about the first search team I was on as we looked for a worship minister. Well, as, I don't know, Providence would have it, I suppose. A few years you know, later, maybe, I don't know, time all runs together so fast, several years down the road, I found myself on another search team looking for another worship minister. This time I had been demoted to be the preacher, and I felt like I had more of a say, and I felt like I had a bigger voice, and I felt like I had... Uh, maybe just come into who I was, or at least I was coming into that. I'm still coming into that. And started to understand that, you know, I, I could maybe make some decisions and, and have a voice. And so as we started looking for a worship minister, we, we just called around, and, and the name that, that came up, really the only name, was this guy by the name of Joe West down in Nashville. And so I thought, man, let's go meet Joe. And so I went down to meet Joe, and 
man, I just love Joe. He was awesome. His attitude was amazing. He was a talented musician. He had a, you know, an amazing story. He loved the church. He loved God. And I thought, man, we couldn't find a better person to lead worship here. If you've been with us long enough, you know that Joe is black. And I thought to myself, you know, I had this story in the back of my mind, this, this past experience, and I had this voice that said, this church isn't ready for a black worship minister. And I thought, are, are we not? Are, are you sure? And I thought, I'm ready. I've been ready. And I said to myself, you know what? If somebody's got a problem with this, they're going to have to tell me. They're going to have to look me in the eye and say, no, we're not going to hire a black guy. I got to hear that. But I'm ready, and I think this church is ready. And so we brought Joe in. We brought Joe in for interviews. We brought Joe in to meet the worship team. We brought Joe in to lead worship. And guess what? Nobody had a problem with that. They love Joe. You love Joe. I love Joe. Joe's a great guy. He was here last week leading worship. And as I reflected on this whole situation, it dawned on me the church never had a problem <laughs> with hiring a black worship minister. One person had a problem with that. But because that person had a position of power, it created an unjust system that closed the door for people. One voice, that's all it took to shut the door in the face of so many people. Friends, that's all it takes is one voice. And then all it took was one voice saying, this is the guy. That's all it took, just one voice. That's the message of this book, that we need to work for right wherever we are because we all have a voice and we all have the capacity to bring about change. That's the message. I want to kind of quickly think through who are you and who am I? I want to look at Xerxes and Mordecai and Esther just real quick. I've got three questions for each because you might be here thinking, I don't know if I'm a Xerxes or a Mordecai or an Esther. And the answer is you might be all of them. You know, it always makes me a little nervous bringing somebody in the church sometimes because I've seen this happen where this person maybe gets walked on at work and they get walked on at home, but then you give them a little bit of power and authority in the church and it goes all to their head and they become a King Xerxes where they have been a doormat every place else. It's a problem. And so you might be here and you might be a King Xerxes in your house, but you are, you know, a subversive or just a victim at work. That's where you are. So I would say this, maybe you're not the same person in every arena of your life. Maybe you're somebody different in different ones. But real quick, so here we go, Xerxes. You might be a Xerxes if you can't celebrate the success of others. If when other people succeed, you feel threatened. If so, you might be a Xerxes. If you're threatened by questions and new ideas, anybody, time somebody comes and asks you a question about what you're doing, what you're thinking, or wants to give you a new suggestion, if you shut them down and you can't hear it, you might be a Xerxes. You might be a Xerxes if you view people based on what they can do for you, not what you can do for them, not even on who they are, but on how you can use them to get ahead. If that's that, that you might be a Xerxes. You might be a Mordecai if you view your position as a platform to empower other people. You might have a position of authority or power in the place that you work or, or you go to school or, or any of these things, and you view your position as an opportunity to bring other people in so that way they can have an opportunity as well. You might be a Mordecai if you actively work to make opportunities for others and if you celebrate the success of others as much as you celebrate your own. If that's you, you might be a Mordecai. You might be an Esther if you realize that your position doesn't determine your worth. 
If you're the low woman on the totem pole and you don't understand, you know, why nobody listens to you, but you understand that you're more than that, that you are in fact a child of God and that God loves you and you determine your worth based on who you are, not on what you do or your function, you might be an Esther. You might be an Esther if you can see the injustice in the system, but the value of the people. One of the things that I think we catch a glimpse of in the book of Esther is that Esther will eventually, I think, come to even look out for the good of the king, who is himself a big part of this unjust system, but she says, you know what, there's some value in this person. If that's you, you might be an Esther. You might be an Esther if you work for change with love. I think that's one of the things that we see. Esther doesn't really put up much of a fight. She just really treats people as people. She loves them. She's not afraid to speak the truth. She's not afraid to use the position she gets. If that's you, you might be an Esther. If Esther teaches us anything, it's that you don't have to have power to change the system. You know, every Sunday we celebrate the greatest subversive in all of history, and that's Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never thought of Jesus as being a subversive, but friends, he was. He was a poor carpenter born in an obscure part of the Roman Empire. He comes to, you know, prominence or fame as he teaches and he preaches, but he, let's not forget, is God who put all that aside. He came and took on this low position And then he allowed himself to be caught up in the gears of the Roman Empire. He allowed himself to be run over by the religious authority of his day. And he allowed himself to literally be buried by them. And just when they thought they put Jesus on the very bottom of the heap, he subverts the whole system through his resurrection. He takes sin and death and he turns it upside down. He turns the world upside down. He turns the Roman Empire upside down. Just give it a couple hundred years and it will be gone. But he will remain. Jesus is the greatest subversive in all of history. I think this is why he tells us the last will be first. This is why he tells us that the meek will inherit the earth. This is why he tells us that if you've got an enemy, you don't hate him. You love him and you pray for him. You come underneath and you subvert the system with love. That's what God is calling us to do, to work for right wherever we are. As the worship team comes out, I want to pray for us right now. God, I I thank you for this incredibly powerful book that reminds us that, God, we find ourselves in an unjust world, and that even if we don't have any power, even if we don't think we have a voice, God, we have the capacity to bring about change. We can work for right wherever we are. And so, God, just as myself, I, I just, I ask for forgiveness for the times when I have been complacent in a system, God, that was unjust, when I have been a Xerxes instead of a Mordecai or an Esther. And God, I know everybody in this room has probably had one of those moments too. But God, I pray that you would give us all strength and courage this week as we work for right wherever we find ourselves, whether it's in our home or in school, whether it's with our our peer group, our system of friends, God, that that maybe have an unjust system of of how people get connected, or God, maybe whether it's, it's in our office place or our place of business and work. God, would you give us the courage to work with love, but to work courageously to use our voice and to work for right wherever we find ourselves this week. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. When you're ready to take the next step on your faith journey, visit our website at bowlinggreenchristian.org. 
and find more information about service times and other programming for both adults and children. Thank you again and have a blessed day.